Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canadians. I am Hugh Hewitt inside the ReliefFactor.com studios. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week, and that means time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale, our great little lantern of the north, are collected at Hillsdale.edu, including all of their online courses, which are so central to your understanding of the West and Western civilization, the rule of law, great stories and and courses on the Constitution, on the history of America, on the ideals that drive us forward all for free, as is the Speech Digest Imprimus, which you ought to be getting every single month in your mailbox for free. You sign up for it at hillsdale.edu. All of these conversations dating back to 2013 with my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, are all collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn and I are making our way through the Constitution now and soon to the Federalist Papers, but we are blessed, Dr. Arn. Good morning. Good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Uh, I am good. We are blessed that the Supreme Court took up Article 3 the same time that we are doing Article 3. But before we get there, I want to ask you about the week that was with President Trump and his decision to extricate himself from the immigration mess, which I think he has done effectively. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. He, uh, it's a, Immigration policy is about the ugliest mess in history. And as I understand it, this uh, thing about separating children from their parents after they cross is an old problem, uh, and it comes from two things. One is it's illegal to come into the United States illegally, to use a great tautology. Uh, and if you bring your children with you, they, they, you are involving them in an illegal act. And then a 1977 court decision said you have to let the children go after 20 days. And so what Obama did was just let everybody go, and what Trump was doing was just was uh, giving the children to the care of the Department of Health and Human Services, which is not the worst thing in the world, but doesn't sound to me like the best thing in the world either. So what he's going to do now is try to house them all. Meanwhile, Congress is passing a bill. I read this morning they're not going to pass it this week. And the bill looks like it's pretty good to me. It's not as good as the Tom Cotton bill that would implement a point system for immigration to the United States, uh, which is really what the solution is. We should just import people who can share the practices and beliefs of a free republic and get a job and work. And uh, that's what Canada does, that's what most people, most countries do. So anyway, uh, we should do that. But what this bill does is it puts $25 billion to build a wall or part of a wall and it uh, provides for uh, better control of the border, and it provides something for the children who've come. There's, what, one, almost two million people, I think, who've come in under the deferred action for something, children who come across the border illegally and were allowed to stay, and there's something close to two million of them, and they'd get some path to citizenship. So... Uh, that bill would be a good help, but in the meantime, Trump has found a way to keep the families together uh, using the Department of Defense. And uh, see, one last thing, you, you, if you think about it hard for a minute, you'll soon see that a country has to, has to have a right to control who comes into it. Because you can just imagine a million of absurd situations that would grow up if that principle were not true. It stems from consent of the governed. We form a country by consent, uh, and, and we 
then the people who are governed in the country have a right to control the country. And, you know, it's, it's hard to think about the United States being overwhelmed, simply overwhelmed by mass immigration. It's a very big country. But imagine a small country. Imagine uh, a country that's Pacific that was once uh, governed by a friend of mine, President Václav Klaus, and his wife was the ambassador to Slovakia. What if the, uh, and the Slovakians and the Czechs have separated peacefully and they're still friends? What if they weren't? What if they were bitter enemies? And what if all the Slovaks decided to move into the Czech Republic or vice versa? You'd have a different country. And uh, so, so the point is, country has a right to borders and a right to control who joins it. And it seems to me, I have a piece in the Washington Post this morning, the president has a winning issue. A vast majority of Americans will not accept the idea of 50,000 people a month coming into the country over the southern border. That's what's happening right now. 50,000 people in May, 50,000 people. And those are the ones that we detained. We don't know how many were effective in avoiding detection and detainment. And so it is, in essence, a quasi-open border. Uh, and he wants to build a fence. He calls it a wall. I've been calling it a fence since 2004. That's wildly popular. The Republicans have always been afraid of it. They don't want to be called racist. But, in fact, it's got nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with sovereignty. And so in my Washington Post column, I say today, it is the visible expression of an invisible resolve to maintain your sovereignty. That's a winning issue. It's very popular. But it's not as popular as separating children from their families is unpopular. And so he allowed, uh, for a brief period of time, his advisors to elevate the latter on top of his demand for the former, and he fixed that, as was smart, I think. Yeah. And see, the government is very inefficient, right? And so a lot of things, foolish things and, and awkward things that presidents do, any president, Obama too, are often things that happen to them, right? So first of all, just think how this goes. It's very hard to get a bill through Congress these days, especially a bill of substance, and that's because the Congress is not really a deliberative body anymore. It, it now mostly delegates legislating, the job of legislating to bureaucratic agencies, which pass 10 times as many laws as Congress. And so Congress is doing some other job now. And it's all divided up, and it's hard to get a bill through. That's one problem. And then district courts, not the Supreme Court of the United States, have decided that it's a violation of the rights of an of a illegally entering child to hold the child for more than 20 days. They pick 20 days. Why not 30 days? Why not 60 days? Some of the court proceedings that go on go on for 60 days. Others go on longer than that. So you got, you got a court. It's a California court with a Flores case, I think was a Ninth Circuit case. And that's a very liberal court. And so they've decided for the whole country. And that means that although we have laws that, that govern when you can come in here, that court decision, coupled by the inaction of Congress to, to adjust to the court decision, effectively establishes open borders for those people who bring children in. And that, that's just not a good, you know, I mean, if you're trying to run a business or a college that way, it's just chaos, right? And so a lot of things are just chaos, and the president is busy, All any president, is busy all the time trying to fix things that result from that chaos. Yeah, and, and it, but the ability to fix it means that people give you good advice. That is, to me, the key here, Doctor. And from the beginning of the republic, even if you're a great man like Washington, 
You need Jefferson as your Secretary of State. You need Hamilton as your Secretary of the Treasury. And they've got to give you good advice or you will run into trees. Yeah, that's true. But uh, And I agree with that point wholeheartedly. And also <laughs> comment, you do need to be a great man because, of course, poor George Washington had the brilliant Hamilton and the brilliant Jefferson, and they didn't like each other, and they disagreed a lot. And, and he had the brilliant Adams who was shut out of the meeting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so in fact, we're, we're down to, to, the, to the point here, which is that when you have many people around you, telling you ABC, and this is complicated. You just referenced the Flores Settlement in 1997. There are three intervening statutes. There is the limit of the executive order. There is Ted Cruz working with Dianne Feinstein on a skinny bill. There is Tom Cotton's very cerebral, very good approach on immigration. There is a House immigration bill, which is a smoking hot mess of conflicting approaches. And the president has to do something. And I just believe he ought to have a scorecard of those who give him good advice and those who give him bad advice and to elevate those who give him the former and to demote those, if not fire, those who give him the latter. You're a president. What do you think of that assessment? (laughs) Well, two things. One is Donald Trump does not seem unwilling to let people go. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Uh, And the other is. You know, you want to, it's, it's very hard. And so it, what, the, way, the way the college runs is the college is, Hillsdale College is stable, right? I mean, we, we're a bunch of people who've been working together for a long time. And the college is growing, and so we're adding more. But, you know, you, and let's say when I first became the president of Hillsdale College, there were some changes, and uh, not as rapid anymore, right? But that's right, you've got to, and, you know, it, everything is a dynamic, right? The, uh, uh, first of all, pre, you know, so I've been president of Hillsdale College for 18 years. And that means that, you know, I've got time to look forward to, too, likely God preserving me. And so, so we can plan, right? Presidents last four years. And so there's a lot of change. And so building a team is not easy, but you're exactly right. You should do that. I will be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. We must remember Charles Cotthammer, and we must get to the Supreme Court's decision in Gill, which is about Article 3, cases and controversies, and what they do and don't do. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studio. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is my guest. All things Hillsdale are contained at hillsdale.edu. All the wonderful online courses, all the downloadable audio that you can binge listen to. All of our dialogues dating back to Homer and 2013 are, con- are contained at hughforhillsdale.com for your binge listening ease of access. Dr. Arn, we lost a great man yesterday. Charles Krautheimer died. I, I do not know your relationship with him. I don't believe we've ever talked about him. We have we have linked to a number of long conversations I had with him on the radio, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guest. Your thoughts on him and your relationship with him and what his role was. Why are so many people mourning? Well, uh, I know him for a long time. Well, uh, mostly I met him because he came and spoke at Hillsdale College events five or six times. Uh, but I would see him in things in Washington. I went uh, twice encountered him in an airport, uh, and uh, we would we talked for some hours, but putting all that together. Uh, why is he important? Well, he's uh, he's a very thoughtful man. Uh, he was also a big-souled man in the following way: 
he was, you know, he had an accident and he lost his ability to walk or fully to move, even including parts of his upper body. And uh, and uh, he ca- carried on despite that and almost unaffected by that in his manner and what it was like to talk to him. For example, encountering him in an airport, um, he, he uh, you know, I, and you know how awkward that is, right, when you know somebody professionally and you don't, you know. And I, I tapped him on the shoulder, and he looked up at me and, oh, Larry, he said. And then he, you know, he, had, he, he could hold out one of his hands enough for you to shake it. And uh, and then what what proceeded was a five minute conversation that was fun and cheerful and informative. So he was a very natural human being who'd suffered that terrible thing, but one is reluctant to use the word "suffered" about it because you, you know he was a psychiatrist, and so you know which is a medical doctor with expertise in mental illness, and that means he knew a lot of science. And so when he would talk about his condition, he would analyze it for you. And, uh, and, you know, that was, again, he was bigger than his condition. He had a big soul, even if he had a broken body. Uh, There's a book of essays. I'm looking for the title while we talk. Uh, And if people want to understand... Things that matter, things that matter. That's it. If people go and read the first essay in that, they will see the power of the man. It has much to do with Winston Churchill, which is why I read it. And uh, I wrote him a letter after it. It's the longest letter I ever wrote him. And uh, I just told him how insightful that was and how great it was that he thought about such things. So that was his genius, I think. I remember that that now. I had forgotten that. I have about four hours of audio with Dr. Krauthammer posted over at com from when he wrote his letter announcing that he would be leaving us. Uh, and we posted all the audio, and I'd remembered that he, that was the only original piece in Things That Matter. Uh, everything else was an essay he had previously published, first hardcover collection of essays in the modern era to sell a million copies. Right? Mm-hmm. So Montaigne has sold a million, Bacon has sold a million, but they've sold it over 500 years, so it doesn't yeah, really yeah. count. Charles Scott Hammer comes out with Things That Matter, and he sells a million copies. And it's to me because he's on Fox News, and not just because it's on Fox News, because a lot of people on Fox News don't sell a million copies, but because he was elegant in argument, which tells me there's a desire for that, Doctor Arndt. Yeah, he was a he was a very intelligent man, and so what he had to say was interesting. And there was a consistency in him. You know, he rethought a lot of things in his life, and he comes to sight to me and you probably after he had become a rebel against the tendencies of the nation. And earlier in his life, he told me once he had been very comfortable with those and. Uh, you know, you can just see that a lot of the things we do in this country will, in the end, bring it apart if we don't fix them. And they're old things and powerful things, and he stood up against that. I will be right back with Dr. Arn. We turn to Article 3, which the Supreme Court also did this week. Stand by, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, from the ReliefFactor.com studio. I am Hugh Hewitt. 
cocky as I do in the last radio hour of every week with someone from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. It is time for your rising senior to go get their college applications in order. Send them to hillsdale.edu. Download it. Get them there. Get them the credential that will set them apart from everyone else in the United States, the certainty of an education. Hillsdale.edu can also educate you with their online courses. And Hugh for hillsdale.com will provide you I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours of listening excellence because Dr. Arn's been with me a lot. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. Uh, Larry, uh, before we go forward to Article 3, um, what's the application process like now? Aren't you going off the charts with the number of people who are trying to, to jam through the door at Hillsdale? Uh, we are, yeah. It's hard to get into Hillsdale College these days. So uh, my advice to you young people is you have to talk your way in. You have to tell us that we, you really want to do what we do. And what we do is easy to define, just hard to do. Half the curriculum is the same for everybody. It's a core curriculum drawn from the traditions and from nature itself about what you need to know to be an educated person. And there are two qualities that you young people need, and one is willingness, and that's under your control. How hard are you going to work? What do you want to do with yourself? How ambitious are you? How much will you sacrifice to build yourself a great character in life? And the other is ability. And ability grows, by the way, if you live your life properly. So, you know, we, we look for young people who will succeed at this kind of work because we want to be in the success business. We want to have a great college. And so we, you know, we have a lot of applications. It's a weird thing this year. We have at Hillsdale College almost exactly the same number of boys and girls. And that's very rare these days. It's uh, a lot of places it's getting up towards 70% girls. And this year's, next year's freshman class is going to have more boys. And, that is uh, very unusual. Very, yeah. And, and I'll just add something. For the first time, I announced it at commencement when Mike Pence was there. Uh, for the first time that I know of, our top 10 students were all girls. Now, the academic profile at Hillsdale College, the entering profile, their grade point average and test scores, are just about exactly equal. We don't have to cherry pick to get enough boys. <laughs> but the girls do rather better, which means, in my conclusion, boys are just as smart as girls. They're just more often stupid. <laughs> or, or may I may I amend your your statement? They are more often found to be doing stupid things. And so, <laughs> is that also your experience as a president of the college that in matters of discipline you are more often than not confronted with a male of the species as opposed to a female of the species? Yeah, there, there are shining exceptions, but that's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me go to Article Three. One of the things everyone of those young men and women will learn at Constitution is the Constitution of the United States. And Dr. Arn and I have been moving as the news and events allows us through the Constitution. We began Article 3 last week. And Article 3 I read for you last week doesn't take very long. It's, it's three sections. It is one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs total. In Section 2, it says the judicial power shall extend to all cases, blah, blah, blah. In, in Section 2, Paragraph 2, it says in all cases affecting ambassador, blah, blah, blah. Article Section 2, Article 3, the trial of all crime, blah, blah, blah. And the only thing you find are cases and controversies. The Supreme Court is limited to hearing and the courts of the United States cases and controversies. So this week, 
uh, plaintiffs in the state of Wisconsin brought to the Supreme Court for decision, which was handed down this week, their alleged injury that the state of Wisconsin had denied them their full participation in the politics of America by gerrymandering their districts, meaning writing the lines in the way that the legislature wanted to write the lines for the district. We have only one rule about writing lines. Uh, Every 10 years after the census, every American who votes in any district in any level of government must, at the beginning of those 10 years, vote in districts have the same number of people, except for the Senate of the United States, which will come back. In considering the claims of these plaintiffs that Wisconsin had done them wrong in the drawing of their district lines, the Supreme Court elegantly and concisely said in the pen of Chief Justice Roberts, a plaintiff seeking relief in federal court must first demonstrate that he has standing to do so, including that he has a personal stake in the outcome. Baker v. Carr, distinct from a generally available grievances about government, Lance v. Kaufman. That threshold rights to the Chief Justice requirement, quote, ensures that we act as judges and do not engage in policymaking properly left to elected representatives, citing Hollingsworth. Certain of the plaintiffs before us, writes the Chief Justice this week, alleged that they had such a personal stake in this case, but never followed up with the requisite proof. The district court and this court therefore lack the power to resolve their claims. We vacate the judgment and remand the case for further proceedings in the course of which those plaintiffs may attempt to demonstrate standing in accordance with the analysis in this opinion. End of paragraph. That's the holding. Bravo, Chief Justice Roberts. What say you, President Arn? Uh, well, so I've just, I've, I have three things to say. First is, uh, this Saturday, tomorrow, Justice Thomas turns 70 years old. Everybody should say hooray. Hooray! Happy birthday, Justice Thomas, who may in fact be listening. Also, my wife turns 29 tomorrow. Perfect! Um, oh, they share the same birthday. They do. I, I learned that this very morning. with He ages and she Virginia does not. That is great. That is yeah, it's great. So, uh, the second thing is, um, Ryan Walsh, one of the smartest kids I ever saw, is a uh, you know, Chicago law graduate clerk for Scalia, was going to sit in the second chair on that case before the Supreme Court. And the third thing is, I'm so glad that case is not going there, and, uh, uh, except to be dismissed. And the reason for that is, this, uh, just think of it. Once you understand the Constitution a little bit, you can see that there are various things that are very sensitive in it. And most sensitive of all is the electoral process, because in a purely representative government, think what that means. That means uh, the government represents us, but we can't do anything except through the government. The only means we have to control it is through elections. And so elections have been decided through politics, right, and that, that how their shape and their structure. And, you know, uh, they vary states very widely in their political complexion and part of the founders purpose is achieved by that being true and by for example being elected president you have to appeal widely around the country and so there's a lot of institutions that are hallowed that have grown up from the founding and the state control of of, uh, district boundaries is one of them and I personally think they should make the boundaries more fair, and I even think that ways are known to do that that uh, have this advantage. Um, it's hard to predict in advance exactly which party will be 
will be advantaged. But, you know, there's, there's ways to draw lines so that you have a rule that you have to start up in one corner of the state and go contiguous all the way through the state and get the right number of people. That apparently would work. And there's ways to let computers do it where you get the most contiguous districts where the edges are closest to the center. And apparently both of those would yield, you know, because you can model them now, right? And that's a change in all this gerrymandering stuff because it's scientific now. Uh, that's why, you know, the famous thing that you and I will know about, Hugh, that Willie Brown drew, uh, when he was running the California, <laughs> yeah. he once, he once uh, uh, drew a district that had about a 50-mile section that was as wide as a highway. Yeah, it was so beautiful. <laughs> it was a thing of beauty, actually. You remember, Gary Mandarin gets its name from Elbridge, Elbridge, Eldridge Gary, who was a framer. And they drew him a district up in Massachusetts, which looked like a salamander. So they called it a gerrymander, and that's what it comes from. I always like to remind people, though, Dr. Arn, when our brilliant framers sat down, to organize a series of compromises that became the Constitution, the first thing they had to do is say, we will not have one person, one vote. First of all, slaves could not vote. Secondly, women could not vote. But they had large states and small states. And the first thing they did is, every state shall have two senators. So at the heart of the Constitution is numerical inequality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and see, just remember, voting, so they, the, the Federalist had a kind of general way to put about how, who gets represented. And that and it needed to be general for the following reason. The aim of the nation is not voting, it's liberty. And voting and consent of the governed is, is vital to that aim of liberty. And so Madison says in the Federalist Papers that the for, to be representative, the government must represent the great body of the people. And then you can do things like protect the authority of states, which is a protection of decentralization. That, and that means, you know, everything doesn't get gathered up in Washington, D.C., which is not what they wanted and not what most people want today, by the way, although it is considerably happened. So the point is there's a bunch of goods that are served through the constitutional structure, including the way authority flows, because half the legislature is is uh, under the control of states. Indeed, it was a better day, in my opinion, before they amended the Constitution, that state legislatures appointed senators. And if you think, if you want to think of some way so that you could protect the authority of states, so the federal government doesn't just gobble up everything on earth, just repeal the 18th Amendment, 17th Amendment, 17th Amendment, 18th Amendment has already been repealed. Yeah, I, I got to say, it, it goes back to when we when we talk about district lines and people who get to bring their cases and controversies before the court, we can't allow everyone to turn the courts into their grievance proceedings, right? And we can't allow an individual, just because they're a taxpayer, to bring an assault on the lines that have been drawn. We have to elect people. And if you're, if you're upset with your lines, elect people who are upset with the lines. Isn't that the basic argument? That's right. So there's a paragraph in that Wisconsin case that I don't like, because the court speculates toward the end of the opinion, and I do like the opinion, and praise to Justice Roberts. And, you know, all nine of them voted for parts of that opinion. Yes. Um, but 
there's a but there's a, a a sort of prospective or future-looking paragraph in which he says, well, if a case arises that does this thing, right? But the truth is that's not the court's business. The court gets cases before it, and one safeguard for the court not becoming imperial, which it is doing because it's the partner of the bureaucracy and really running the country, um, is that they should stick to that, right? In other words, whatever may arise in the future, these facts in front of us today and the laws that, that concern them compared to the Constitution of the United States mean this, and they should just say that and stop. Uh, 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 amen. Say that and stop. When we come back, we'll talk about what happens if they don't. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arner's The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Go over and sign up for Imprimus during the break as well and be right back here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I am Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studios inside the Beltway. My guest is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. It is the birthday of the wonderful Mrs. Arn, first lady of Hillsdale, and of Justice Clarence Thomas, friend of Dr. Arn, acquaintance of mine, and author of the concurrence uh, in uh, part uh, in uh, in the opinion of Chief Justice Roberts, we were talking about in the Gill case and in the judgment. And since it is his birthday, I think I think I will read, uh, if you don't mind, Dr. Arn, the entirety of Justice Thomas's concurrence with whom Justice Gorsuch joins concurring in part and concurring in the judgment. I join parts one and two of the court's opinion, writes Justice Thomas, because I agree that the plaintiffs have failed to prove Article 3 standing. I do not join Part 3, which gives the plaintiffs another chance to prove their standing on remand. When a plaintiff lacks standing, our ordinary practice is to remand the case with instructions to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. And here he cites a few cases. The court departs from our usual practice because this is supposedly, quote, not the usual case. Ante at 21. But there's nothing unusual about it, writes Clarence Thomas. As the court explains, the plaintiff's lack of standing follows from a long-established principle of law. After a year and a half of litigation in the district court, including a four-day trial, the plaintiffs had a more than ample opportunity to prove their standing under these principles. They failed to do so. Accordingly, I would have remanded this case with instructions to dismiss. End of concurrence. Justice Thomas has an economy of with words that really, really, really could be useful everywhere. But the Chief Justice wanted to bring the court with him, so he left a door just slightly ajar. Yeah. So that's a, I'm so glad you read that, Hugh. I had not read that. And it's an experience that I have attending to Justice Thomas now for 30 years. Uh, I very much bridled at the end of Robert's opinion, thought it was wrong-headed in the wrong posture of the court, and I didn't know that Justice Thomas had written that thing. And it's not just, it's not, he's, it's not brilliant because he agrees with me. It's brilliant because, gosh, don't you learn something from that? He yes. He that point a lot better than I did. Yes. Well, that's, you know, he's a, he a justice of the Supreme Court. You're running a college. You have to do things more than just consider 65 cases. You don't work very hard at the Supreme Court. Now I'm going to get grief from them. Uh, 65 cases a year, it's like 15 each or 10 each, right? If you write your dissents. What do they do all the time, you wonder? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, he, I, I actually know, you know, oddly enough, I know about his work day. I know. They it, listen, too. I know they listen. It, they, they work hard. And, uh, uh, and think about Gorsuch, too, you know, who is, by the way, the greatest modern. I told, I told Justice Gorsuch this. You have written the greatest modern judicial opinion. And he replied, hogwash. And then I 
proved my case because I had brought the page with me in Reince versus U.S., uh, a district court decision that he wrote. He diagrams a sentence in the statute <laughs> to discover it, like, you know, like you used to do on the blackboard in grammar yep. school if you were well-educated. And it's just brilliant. And it just whipped around uh, Hillsdale College like a, like a whirlwind. Look at that. The guy's diagrammed a sentence. And I held that up. And I said, there's my case. There's your case. <laughs> and, he said, and I said, everyone is, at Hillsdale College is reading this. And he said, oh, gosh, is it accurate? <laughs> <laughs> All right. The last question, speculation uh, on retirements. There is some speculation that Justice Thomas is more likely to retire than Justice Kennedy. What say you? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't have inside knowledge about that, let's say, although I do happen to know him and his wife. You know, I call her a friend. I don't call him a friend because he's a high constitutional officer. But um, he's, he's very dutiful, right? He, he thinks that he was put there for some work. And for one thing, I would doubt very much that he would retire at a time when his vote is critical. Uh, because he loves the Constitution, and he thinks that God and George W. Bush and John Danforth, his sort of political mentors, uh, George H. W. Bush, the one who picked him, uh, he thinks that he was put there to do a duty and fulfill his oath, and it's very much needed. And so. I think that he probably, you know, I, I, by the way, I think that he has wanted to retire since he got on the court. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it, uh, he, the work is, he loves something about the work. He loves figuring it out and working with his clerks. And his clerks are a precious thing to him, and he picks them very carefully, and I happen to know a few of them. One of them is a student of mine. And they love him, right? So he loves... The, the actual doing of the work. He doesn't much like the trappings of it, doesn't participate in those to the extent that many of them do. Uh, and so, yeah, in one way, he'd love to go, you know, retire and go drive his bus around the country and stay in campgrounds. On the other hand, he's got a job to do, and Lord, can he not do it? I, I actually regard him as the best of them. Uh, always great to talk with Dr. Arn on these and other subjects. We'll continue next week on the Hillsdale Dialogue.